Jethro and Moses, father-in-law of Moses. Here's what we read. Hear the word of God. And Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, that the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her back with her two sons, of whom the name of one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. The name of the other was Eliezer, for he said, The God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. Now he had said to Moses, I, your father-in-law, Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other about their well-being And they went into the tent and Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for the sake, for Israel's sake, all the hardships that had come upon them on the way and how the Lord had delivered them. Then Jethro rejoiced for all the good which the Lord had done for Israel, whom he had delivered out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro said, blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians And out of the hand of Pharaoh and who has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods. For in the very thing in which they behaved proudly, he was above them. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and other sacrifices to offer to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. And so it was on the next day that Moses sat to judge the people and the people stood before Moses from morning until evening. So when Moses father in law saw all that he did for the people, he said, what is this thing that you're doing for the people? Why do you alone sit and all the people stand before you from morning until evening? And Moses said to his father in law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a difficulty, they come to me and I judge between one and another and I make known the statutes of God and his laws. So Moses, father-in-law, said to him, the thing that you do is not good. Both you and these people who are with you will surely wear yourselves out. For this thing is too much for you. You're not able to perform it by yourself. Listen now to my voice. I will give you counsel and God will be with you. Stand before God for the people so that you may bring the difficulties to God. And you shall teach them the statutes and the laws and and show uh, them the way in which they must walk and the work they must do. Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Then it will be that every great matter uh, they shall bring to you, but every small matter they themselves shall judge. It will be easier for you, for, for they will bear the burden with you. If you do this thing and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure. And all the people will also go to their place in peace. So Moses heeded the voice of his father in law and did all that he had said. And Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people's Uh, The people, rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties and rulers of tens. So they judged the people at all times, the hard cases they brought to Moses. But they judged every small case themselves. 
Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went his way to his own land. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the the record of this incident and the wisdom of Jethro uh, and the circumstances here which we find highly instructive to the church, especially uh, we being a Presbyterian church. We ask you, O God, that through the reading and now through the preaching of your word, we might have a greater and a clearer sense of what it is our duties and our tasks are and what a proper view of the church ought to be. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we see here, we have the reunion of Moses and Jethro, along with his wife and two sons. Uh, they met at the mountain of God, verse 5, which we know is Mount Sinai. And we know what's about to happen there, as we saw in the morning. And chapter 19 will be a terrifying experience. But there they were, and there they met Jethro. We remember Jethro from the earlier chapters of Exodus, chapters 2 and 3, where in Exodus 2 we read Moses Uh, flees from Egypt to Midian, and there uh, he meets this family. He stays with the priest of Midian and marries one of his daughters, Zipporah, and has two sons, and that priest was Jethro. We also read in chapter 3, verse 1, that Moses was a shepherd of his flocks, and as he was tending the flock, he met with God for the first time at the same mountain, Mount Sinai. Now that was 40 years prior to this. Now, the, uh, or is that, actually, that statement may not be true. Uh, anyway, setting that aside, I won't try to confirm it one way or the other. The point is, uh, before Moses left to go back to Egypt, uh, there he was at the mountain, and now fleeing from Egypt, he returns to the mountain and he meets Jethro there. The only other reference that we have in the earlier chapters is chapter 4, verse 18. Where it is said, and here we just get some sense of the character of Moses, or excuse me, of Jethro, a man whom we we will see, and I hope to uh, say it was a godly man. So Moses went and returned to Jethro, his father-in-law, this was having received the call of God, and said to him, please let me go uh, and return to my brethren who are in Egypt and see whether they're still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. Moses left with the blessing of his father-in-law. We're also able to infer, it isn't explicitly said in those chapters, uh, but it becomes clear here that Moses left Zipporah and his sons with Jethro, and it appears now uh, with the reunion that occurred that uh, they had made prior arrangements that upon his return, Jethro would meet him at the mountain and bring his family back to him. And now he was fulfilling that request. The focus of the chapter is not so much the reunion of Moses and his wife and his sons. The first six verses are devoted to that. I have almost nothing more to say on those verses. Uh, But the focus rather is on this mighty exchange that occurs between Moses and his father-in-law. In In fact, it's it's a kind of famous uh, exchange. uh, Just by saying Exodus 18, you call to mind this exchange to many people, certainly to ministers. And I know this is true because I've brought this up in many conversations I've had. And here we have two remarkable occurrences that occur on two separate days. Uh, The more remarkable is the second. Uh, But let us look at them both. What happens on the first day first? The happy report Moses gives of their success. Verse 8, Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. All the hardships that had come upon them on the way and how the Lord had delivered them. He gives a summary of what 
uh, Israel had experienced on the way. We read this, uh, an, an instance of Jethro's piety. Jethro rejoiced for all the good which the Lord had done for Israel, whom he had delivered out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and who has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods, for in the very thing in which they behaved proudly, he was above them. Well, as I say, this is the lesser important of the two exchanges, but it is worthy of some note. The first thing that we notice here, and surely this is important, every time we see it, I want to emphasize it very strongly in the Old Testament, is the faith of Jethro. It isn't altogether clear to me, and I found that my commentators were no help to me in this, whether Jethro was already a believer in the true God when he was the priest in Midian when Moses had first met him, uh, nor was it clear, is it clear the kind of priesthood he had there in Midian. He was a descendant of Abraham. It's difficult to say. And so I cannot say whether the, wor- the words which we read here represent his conversion. I'm tempted to say that, but I don't think I'm able to say that. Or rather, as Matthew Henry takes it, the confirmation of his faith, which he already had. All I know for certain is that now he did have faith and that his priesthood was a true one. When we see that verse 12, Jethro, Moses, father-in-law, took a burnt offering and other sacrifices to offer to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses, father-in-law, before God. To me... In all that we read there, the most significant words occur in verse 11 where he says, Now I know. Words which could be taken in many ways. As I said, it could be his conversion before he had entertained good hopes concerning Moses' God and the errand that God sent him on. But now he knew. I think that's very likely, though, as I say, I can't say for sure. Or else, as seems more likely to Matthew Henry, as he says in his commentary, his faith was hereby confirmed. And he took this occasion to make a solemn profession of it. He knew it before, but now he knew it better. His faith grade up to a full assurance. Something like, uh, we would have to think here, what we read in Genesis 15, where Abraham wrestled for greater assurance, though we know he had faith. He believed in the Lord. The Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness, verse 6. And yet a few verses later, he says, Lord, how may I know? Look at what confirmed his faith. Simply that God dealt with the proud. Verse 11 again. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods. For in the very thing in which they behave proudly, he was above them. Here was a man whose faith gloried in the fact that God humbled the proud and that God was exalted above the nations. This is the kind of stuff the godly glory in. It is the kind of thing the righteous long to see. And when they do see it, they cannot help but praise God for it. But going further with this point, his faith also tells us something else. It speaks of a contrast, in fact, two points of contrast that we're bound to observe in the greater context of the book of Exodus. We had just read of the Amalekites uh, who met Israel in the wilderness and who warred against them. And yet here in the following chapter, 
we have another encounter in the wilderness where this Midianite comes to meet them, not with hostility, but in faith. Speaking of these two extremes, Kyle and Dillich say their opposite attitudes demonstrate the different attitudes which they assume towards the Israelite foreshadowed and typified the twofold attitude which the heathen world would assume towards the kingdom of God. This is something that the Israelites would face and it is something that those who belong to the kingdom of God will always face as they exist in the wilderness. Hostility on the one hand, but not all hostility. There will also be, thank God, many happy encounters with true believers. There will be some who would join Israel in her fold, linking their faith with hers. But there's another contrast which I think is even more striking and which you cannot help but notice. And that isn't Jethro and the the Amalekites, but Jethro and the Israelites. Far more striking is his faith in contrast with theirs. Here is this heathen priest's faith that far outshone that of Israel. Here was Israel murmuring in the wilderness, conscious of the same mighty acts which Moses recounted to Jethro, only more so since she was the recipient of them. But where was her faith? Oh, but look at this man Jethro. You can almost hear Moses saying as he composes the book of Exodus. Look at him. See how he blesses God and rejoices at his mighty works. See his faith. To quote Matthew Henry again, this was not the only time that the faith of the Gentiles shamed the unbelief of the Jews. And indeed, we know this is the kind of thing, as we come to the Gospels in the New Testament, we find it's almost characteristic of the Gospels. So often, Jesus looks for faith among the Jews and he doesn't find it. But he does find it again and again in the Gentiles. Well, this is a type or a foreshadowing of that kind of experience. But setting aside what happened on the first day and coming now to the second day, which, as I say, is more significant. Having had such happy religious fellowship on the day before, Jethro on the following day witnesses the kind of work which Moses was engaged in. And what he notices is that the work which Moses was doing appeared to be too much as it would to anyone. You look at what Moses was doing. He was working from morning until night. Verse 13. And so it was on the next day that Moses sat to judge the people and the people stood before Moses from morning until evening. And he says to him, what are you doing? What is this thing that you're doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand before you from morning until evening? Moses explains to him in verses 15 and 16, because The people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a difficulty, they come to me and I judge between one and the other. And I make known the statutes of God and his laws. But his father-in-law says, the thing you're doing is foolish. You'll just wear yourself out. You have to get help. You can't bear this burden alone. Listen to me and see if the Lord approves my counsel. Get you some elders to help you in the work. Men of fervent piety and zeal like yourself. That is, in essence, what uh, he says in the following verses, beyond verse 16. 
And I want to analyze the precise details of this council, uh, council of which there are many, but there you have the gist. He was telling him, in essence, to get help and not to try to do it all alone. We have here, as we saw in the prior chapter, Moses uh, again faltering for lack of strength. In need of help uh, of men like Aaron and her to bear up his arms as he is engaged in holy work. And I think we'd have to say in light of that, in light of what we read in chapter 17 and now in chapter 18, the counsel which he gives was wise and timely. We get the sense that Moses was beginning to falter. And he couldn't do it all on his own. Now, one of the questions I have, and perhaps it's a question which you had as I read the chapter, I said this is a chapter on the elders, yet that's a word you don't find in the chapter. And so the question which I have is, what should we call these men? I don't know that they have a title. I think the closest thing to a title they have in this chapter is rulers. So perhaps you could call them ruling elders. I'm not exactly sure. The parallels between the old church and the new church are not always uh, one to one. At best, we have something like a resemblance, and that's the level at which I want to look at it. But recognizing that and having said that, I've always called them elders, seeing a strong parallel between this and the church. Moses was like the minister, and here were his elders. And I'm not prepared even now to give that up. But I will concede this, that we do see much earlier in Exodus that there already were elders in Israel. In fact, we read that in the prior chapter and you read it in other chapters which come before. Well, if there were already elders, how could it be said here that he was appointing elders? Well, what I would notice about those elders we read about earlier on in Exodus is that in describing them as elders was not so much to describe an official title or an office as it was a description of who they were. They were the elder men, literally. The patriarchs of the clans themselves. But from what we see here in Exodus 18, there was no one who functioned anything like an elder in the sense of an office. Or as we find in the New Testament, not even these men who were called elders. And that is what Jethro is telling Moses he needs. Whether we call them judges or rulers or I found this very surprising as Matthew Henry calls them lesser magistrates. Or, as I would call them, elders. There is no escaping that, uh, escaping the sense that this parallel does in fact exist. Again, seeing this as the old church, Moses as the minister, these men as his elders. And so I say again, that is what we have here. Moses the minister, they the elders. And this is what his wise father-in-law Jethro counsels him. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> I... If Moses was the minister, I misspoke. If Moses was the minister, he had no elders at this moment. And that is what Jethro's father-in-law was counseling him against. Now, the thing I want to notice especially is how they were to function with respect to Moses, the minister. Assuming we accept uh, that framework. Technically, these men were set over the people as rulers. But it was for Moses' sake more than anything else or anyone else. That is the thing that's so interesting to me. And surely that is the point we're meant to see. How the elders are meant to help 
the minister. Well, begin with Moses. Look at him here. Moses was the man with the call. We read uh, so much in the earlier chapters, especially chapter 4, but going uh, even beyond that, how God's call came to Moses. And what we noticed about Moses for so long was the way in which he struggled with that call. He He resisted it. He was reluctant. He was, like we read so often, the reluctant prophet in Scripture. He all but rejected the call. But God was insistent that Moses was the man. And so there was no use in resisting in the end. God placed his call on Moses and there was nothing Moses could do about it. He must yield to God. He must submit to the call. There was no use in resisting it. And happily we know that he does. And with very happy results. He becomes mighty in the hands of God. We've we've just been reading all about this. As Moses was in Egypt, once he had accepted the call. But look at him here, and what do we notice now that he's accepted the call and he's engaged in the work? And imagine him being like a minister in a local church. The trouble was he began to do too much. He knew he was the man of God's choosing, so he tried to do it all alone. For a while he might succeed, but not forever. But you see, from what he says to Jethro, he had the sense that there was nothing else he could do. You see, Jethro, the people come to me with the problems and I try to help them by giving them the answers as best I can. What is it you want me to do? God gave me these people to care for. What else was there to do but to, but to, be, uh, but to spend and be spent in their service? Even those you remember... Who were just ready to stone him. We read in the prior chapter. Again and again. We have to say what a, what a meek and faithful servant Moses was. He was wearing himself out for these people. Even as they were prepared to kill him. Still he went on with the work from morning till evening. Utterly wearing himself out. Now I would immediately notice here. That some would say this was actually commendable. Look at this minister. His zeal. His burden for the people. His concern. It's wonderful. I'm not so sure. We read about men like John Wesley who spent so much time at the fields preaching that he neglected his family. I'm not sure I can admire that. Or George Whitfield who died an untimely death because he literally preached himself to death. We glory in this wrongly, I think. These men lacked moderation. They lacked wisdom. But Jethro speaks with wisdom here. He says, this is folly. This is no way to prosecute a ministry. You'll never last. You'll never endure. A man can't go on like this, nor is he meant to. A man who's done this has made too much of his calling and his gifts if he thinks all depends on him. Yet, let me say this very humbly. How common this becomes the expectation of the minister. Common, I mean, of the man himself. It's very often the case that the minister begins, as we see Moses here, to expect this of himself, and he tries to do everything. And he won't even allow anyone to help him. Thinking it all depends on him. But common also for the church to expect the same. Now, I'll be honest here. I found at various periods uh, in my ministry where I confessed I was feeling the work was too much for whatever reason, such times, I had countless people tell me 
That was the point. That the point of ministry was to wear oneself out. That I was meant to do so. And that anything less than that was essentially an unspiritual view of the ministry. Spend and be spent. Seems always to be the counsel to the minister in his hour of need. Now I'm not throwing stones here. Not to anyone in this church nor to my friends in the ministry who have said this to me. I'm only questioning the wisdom of such an attitude as Jethro himself did. It was the attitude of Moses. Yet Jethro, I think we can agree here, corrects him wisely. And Moses uh, comes to see the wisdom of this as well. So we have to be honest here and ask, is that wise? What I'm saying is the common The commonest attitude about the ministry and the minister. Is that the best policy? Best suited for the man himself and even for the people? You notice Jethro brings them in as well. His greatest concern is not only for Moses, but for Moses and the people. Who will benefit if the minister has a nervous breakdown? As I have known ministers to have. Or if his work begins to suffer because he's not man enough to bear so great a burden. Certainly not the people. And so Jethro, in essence, tells him three things here. The first thing he says is let the man, the minister, preach. Verse 20. You shall teach them the statutes and the laws and show them the way in which they must walk and the work they must do. Before he tells them, I want you to appoint elders. He emphasizes the centrality of his office as a minister Or rather, the central aspect of his office being that of a preacher. Moses was a prophet. And the great thing God was calling him to do in leading the people out of Israel was to teach them the law. And he was just about to do that, as we know, from Mount Sinai. Now again, can we help but see the parallel here between this and the New Testament church, where the minister, as we know, is to give himself to teaching and preaching. The elders, however, are not assigned with this task, at least not primarily. This is the task of the minister. And so if you think of the situation in which Moses found himself uh, and, and the difficulty he was confronting, let me say this again, bringing this counsel into the modern situation. The minister's greatest burden is, as Jethro says, not to solve every little problem. And if he's not careful, his whole ministry will look like Moses here. He'll be spending all his time counseling the people. I've known of ministers who spend their entire week in counseling and they simply have no time to prepare sermons. I I wonder how they find they're able to preach at all on Sundays. But they honestly think that's the way to do it. Well, I'm telling you that's backwards. That's backwards, Jethro is saying. You will do far more for the people if you assume your proper place and embrace your calling as a preacher and teacher of the people. Give them the law publicly. Instruct them in that law. In other words, preach to them and let that be your greater work. My two favorite books on the ministry, the book by William Still and the book by Martin Lloyd-Jones, both make this exact point. Do not spend your weeks filled with counseling. Spend them Filled with sermons, sermon preparation. Both of these men warned that a ministry of all counseling and no preaching is all but useless. And that if you aren't careful that the people will begin to demand this of you. No, that's all wrong, they say. Make yourself scarce. 
Bury yourself in your study and prepare mighty and edifying sermons. And let that be the way you seek to help people. The testimony of these men is something I entirely agree with. That you'll do far more good for the people in preaching good sermons than you ever can trying to solve all their problems over a sandwich. I'm not saying there's no place for this. Only that we have to be careful. And that we have to keep things in their proper order. And not see that we have as here a kind of inversion of priorities within the church. It isn't good for the minister. It isn't good for the people. The greatest good you'll ever do, Jethro was saying, or Lloyd-Jones, or William Still, is through preaching. In fact, both of them claim, and I think equally of a, a little article Carl Truman wrote, entitled The Therapy of the Word, speaking of modern Christian counseling. Which he says is basically all but useless if only people would listen to the preaching. If they would sit faithfully in the preaching morning and evening, Sabbath after Sabbath. Well, he says, or all of them are saying, that easily 99% of the problems which these people were bringing to Moses would be dealt with entirely. If only you will preach to them, Moses, and if only they will listen. Look at what Moses was doing after all. As they were coming to him with their problems, he was expounding the law. Well, instead of doing that to one man a hundred times, why not do that to a hundred men, a hundred men once? Do that same work in a more general way in the public preaching ministry and let them work out the details on their own with the help of the Spirit and, as we'll later see, with the help of the elders. So that is the first thing. Keep first things first, Jethro says. Devote yourself to the preaching. And soon as I say, we'll see the mighty preaching ministry of Moses begin. But the second thing he says, I also find highly interesting, uh, basically in dividing the pastoral workload among the elders. He says, let the minister, let Moses deal with the weightier matters, those which are not so easily solved. Verse 22 let them judge the people at all times, then it will be that every great matter they shall bring to you. But every small matter they themselves shall judge. So it will be easier for you, for they will bear the burden with you. Since your ministry is not to be one of all counseling, let us say, but primarily one of preaching, you cannot have your life full of all of the small problems. But you ought to have a say in the bigger problems of the church. And so free the man from his burden, free him up so he can preach. But also, he seems to be saying here, show him greater deference among the elders. Realize that in many ways, he is best equipped among the elders to help with the weightier matters, since he is the man who has the calling and the gifts and who also has the training. And also, uh, we could add to that the fact that he is the man who is constantly engaged in expounding God's law. He spends his days in the ministry of the word and in prayer. He is the man who is steeped in God's law. Of course, he would be the man with the most knowledge of what God might require in the more difficult cases. Show him the proper deference in essence. Thus, the greatest weight ought to be attached to his words. But he ought not to be troubled by the, by the lesser matters. 
Now, I would just notice here, and again, I'm throwing no stones. I'm just making my own general analysis based upon Jethro's counsel, that this is not typically what happens in the church. Typically, the minister gets bogged down with the details, if only because it's so hard for anyone else to do so. And so he, if only by necessity, ends up doing it all like Moses here. But this is exactly what Jethro is saying ought not to happen. You remember what happened in Acts chapter 6. Now, that was when the, de- the office of the deacon was founded. I'm going to return to that later on. I almost started uh, to say something there, but let me save that for later on when I return to this. But uh, here, just very briefly, uh, what, what we remember about that was that the, the, the ministers, in essence, the apostles, were devoting themselves to the preaching and the teaching. And there was a problem that arose in the church, the distribution of the gifts among uh, the, the widows or uh, among those in need, and the widows were being neglected, the ministers were saying, we cannot possibly attend uh, to waiting on tables when we have so great a work as this to do, the ministry of the word and of prayer. And so they institute the deacons as a way to solve that problem. It is the same thing here. Devote yourselves to the greater and the weightier matters. Do not get bogged down in the details. You can have others to do that work as well. The whole of the church does not consist of the work of one man. I've also noticed in my time in the ministry that elders tend to assume the opposite posture that is described here. I'm speaking very generally, please understand. And uh, notice also that the, the tendency I'm describing is very subtle. But I question whether it's right, especially based upon this text. The elders almost by accident begin to assume that the minister is to be the primary teacher and preacher, which is surely right. But then in this, they begin to think that the primary weight is to be given to their words and not the minister. In other words, the dynamic I am describing is that he actually begins to show deference to them and not the other way around. It is, as I say, incredibly subtle. But the, but the minister, rather than being the first among equals, actually begins to assume a place beneath the elders so that their say becomes the greatest. The greater matters belong to them. Now, I'm saying this is by far the commonest dynamic you will find in any Presbyterian church. And I'm not seeking to rebuke this or any session. But I think it would be wise of all elders To listen to Jethro here and to consider whether they attach appropriate weight to the words of the minister. Whether his judgment in the greater matters is to them the most valuable given his calling and his office. But then the third thing is this. It's clear he's saying to Moses they're there to help you speaking to Moses. Now that is also very interesting and I believe this confirms the previous point. Which is, and I hesitate to speak this way ever, if it were not biblical, and I am merely expounding upon scripture when I say this, the prominence of the minister. Now why do I say this? Why do I speak of the prominence of the minister and the relationship of the elders? Well, because the elders we see here are meant to be his helpers. I've already said this, but let me expand uh, expand upon it. They are there because... His work is too great to do alone. And so they are enlisted to assist him in the work. 
Which resembles, here we return again to Acts chapter 6, resembles very much the situation that we find there. That the ministers were engaged in the work of preaching and teaching, and it was not self, uh, or, or ministry of the word and prayer, excuse me, it's not self-importance that led them to say, we've got to get deacons, don't ask me to wait on tables. It was rather the urgency of the work, and also their own sense of limitation. We can't possibly do it all. We can't solve every problem in the church and still be engaged in this other work which God has called us to do. What we notice in Acts chapter 6 is very interesting. The office of deacon at that moment was instituted as a matter of expedience. There was a pressing need and so the office was instituted. The men were, as Moses here, getting bogged down in the details. They needed helpers. And so they enlisted these helpers and called them deacons. But do you know, it is the exact same thing here. Only it's elders and not deacons. Let them take up the lesser matters for the benefit of the minister and also for the benefit of the people. Everyone benefits in a church with active elders. One man cannot bear this burden alone. He cannot tend to all the needs of the people. This ought to be obvious. See that they are men of a godly sort, Jethro says. And this is where 1 Timothy 3 comes in, which we read earlier. We also could read Titus chapter 1 and find the same thing. But notice it's the same thing here in the way he describes the character of the men. And so it was equally when we find in the New Testament church the office of the deacon was founded. Look for men who are full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Acts chapter 6. So here, find able men, but also godly men. Let me emphasize both aspects. Able men, but also godly men. Men who fear God. Men who hate injustice and a bribe. Men who are full of the Spirit. Men who are able to rule and so forth. Ability and piety are the two great qualifications for anyone who would rule in the church. Set them over the people, he says. These are to be rulers, again, just as we find in the New Testament elders. They were to settle disputes, to pastor the people as shepherds, to spread the leaven of the law among the congregation in a way no man could do alone. To take the teaching of the minister uh, and bring it to the people directly to improve his sermons among the people. And the people, as we find in the New Testament, as we'll soon see in uh, actually the next chapter, the next sermon in Hebrews, were to show deference to the men who were set above them in the Lord. But above all, these rulers over the people, again, I think if we properly appreciate the emphasis of chapter 18 and the spirit of Jethro's advice, was not so much for the people as it was for, for Moses himself. Let them see themselves as standing in this relation to the minister as his helpers, who sustain him in his work, as those who are there to lift up his hands when they begin to falter, as Moses' hands did upon the mount in Exodus chapter 17, as those who support him in his calling, as those who multiply his labors. Again, I'm arguing for this only because it is to me entirely biblical. And because I think based on the situation, Jethro had to correct Something, the council here, something which is so commonly ignored. But look here at the end, how this great man, Moses, the meekest man of all, humbly submitted 
and accepted the counsel of Jethro. And so he appointed so many elders. And so we would be wise to do the same. I'm saying in the spirit of Exodus 18, our wisdom is found in accepting the counsel of Jethro as it finds its place in sacred scripture. And so I've made a very full appeal to the elders to see themselves in this way, in a biblical light. But also that we as as a Presbyterian church would entertain proper views concerning the presbyters or the elders themselves. And to this end, I would offer this quote from our form of government concerning this office. Here is what it says. Ruling elders individually and jointly with the pastor in the session are to lead the church in the service of Christ. They are to watch diligently over the people committed to their charge to prevent corruption of doctrine or morals. Evils which they cannot correct by private admonition, they should bring to the notice of the session. They should visit the people, especially the sick, instruct the ignorant, comfort the mourning, and nourish and guard the children of the covenant. They should pray with and for the people. Now, everything I said there you can find in Exodus 18. The one thing that I've been emphasized would be missing if you didn't read the last sentence. They should have particular concern for the doctrine and conduct of the minister of the word and help him in his labors. That is exactly what I've been saying. They're there to look after him, to keep him in line. Let us be honest. But most of all, if he gets out of line, most of all to help him in his labors. Having said all that, we have to remember that there is an even greater relationship than that. I want to just close with one final word from the New Testament concerning the office of the elder. And that is what Peter himself has to say in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1-7. through 7. He says, The elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, Not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when Christ, the chief shepherd, appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Well, I should keep reading, actually. Likewise, you younger people, be subject yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with with humility for God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your cares upon him for he cares for you. The reason I want to end on that note is because of the way Peter uh, Peter uh, frames the whole issue. The elders ought to see themselves in relation to the chief shepherd. You're a shepherd, but only under the loving care And accountable to, ultimately, the chief shepherd. The people are to submit to the elders. But ultimately, they must humble themselves under the mighty hand of God. For he cares for you. How? As a shepherd. Understand that the greatest relation that we sustain is not elders to the people or even elders to the minister. The great thing I've been pleading for. But as members of the body to Jesus Christ. Who is, again, the chief shepherd. And recognize especially... How the elders must do this. They must sustain a relationship to him. They must ever have an eye to him. They must recognize that if Jesus so cares for the church that he shed his own blood for her. As, as Paul says in Acts chapter 20. Then he will certainly hold those accountable who cared for her in his stead. 
What a solemn thing it is to hold this office. And may we regard it as such. Amen. And let us uh, stand together in praise to God in singing hymn.